Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. I'm really excited to welcome back Jim Berkman to the Philosophy Podcast. Jim was on two years ago and had one of the most popular episodes we've ever had. Coach Berkman is the head coach at Salisbury, entering his 33rd season. He's had 12 national championships, 560 wins, 51 players of the year, and 228 All-Americans. Jim, every time I read your bio, it blows me away, but uh, I have to say, I feel like you are uh, – as humble as they come and as hardworking. And I'm sure that has to do with why you've had so much success. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Excited to talk some lacks with you today. Yeah, man. We should have, uh, all the, all the listeners missed out on a nice little, uh, pre pre podcast conversation, um, some outtakes on some really, really interesting stuff. Maybe we'll have to revisit some of those topics, uh, around free play and things like this, but, um, let's, let's kick off the conversation with, um, your 20, 2021 team. Um, give us an idea of uh, how the fall went and what you're expecting out of, uh, out, of the, out of the spring. Well, you know, first of all, obviously we were extremely disappointed, you know, with the 20 ending the way it did as everybody was. You know, we were 7-0. We were number one in the country. We had beaten three or four top-ranked teams pretty handily. We'd beaten a really good Gettysburg team on the road. Um, we were in a really good place and we were getting better every day. It was just a really exciting and just a great group. And to have it end, you know, you know, with all those tools in the shed, uh, it, it was very, very frustrating. Um, but, you know, coming into the next year, one of the good things, you know, about Salisbury and, you know, is that we do have a good graduate program and the NCAA granted some more eligibility. So we were fortunate to, to have 10 seniors who, who came back, you know, we had a big class last year, 16 and the, the 10 ones that were pretty prevalent when we talk about all Americans, first teamers and players of the year at certain positions, you know, have all returned for this 21 season. So there's, you know, extremely high expectations and, uh, you know, we hit the ground running in fall ball um, for sure. That being said, you know, when everything kind of was going down, there was a lot of, you know, ups and downs and peaks and valleys, but, but, you know, at the end of the day, when the first semester was over, Salisbury University was one of the few schools in the country that stayed the course. We were here the whole semester. Um, and also with the new NCA rules of not 16 practices in the fall for Division Three uh, of 114 days for the whole year, which kind of changed it. You know, we actually ended up with more lacrosse. Uh, you know, we ended up with 26 practices, I believe, in the fall, with the last one being on December 5th, which would have been a whole five weeks past what we normally would have been. Um, you know, so I, I think we actually probably even got more done with a more experienced group than we ever have in the fall uh, as we head into this 21 season. But, you know, the, 
the national faceoff player of the year two years ago when we had those awards is, is back from Brent Lampy and, you know, we got first team All-American defenseman, uh, Brad Abcar. We got All-American long pole. We got two unbelievable attackmen, one a first team All-American and Josh Melton from from Denver, but the, yeah. you know, maybe our best player is Cross Ferreira, who's a junior attackman who was our leading scorer at the, at the break. Um, it's a, it's a good group, um, with a lot of experience at every position, um, that we're real excited about. Now we got to navigate the landscape and hopefully find some teams that are going to stick, stay the course and play this out in the spring to, to hopefully, you know, pursue a, a 13 championship if possible, if, if it does occur, um, but we're set right now to open up at Randolph-Macon on uh, February 27th. Our month of February, you know, a lot of the bigger games, the Lynchburgs, the Gettysburg have been canceled. Um, we've been able to reschedule Lynchburg into March. There's no word on Gettysburg in their conference yet. So it's uh, every day you're, you're canceling one game and you're scheduling hopefully other games, you know, as we kind of move forward. But, you know, the goals are excited about playing lacrosse because there there's a it's a fantastic group for sure why don't you just um get some uh, division one teams on the schedule this year there's gonna be some uh, some people looking for games i bet that are nearby you know the, we'd love to love to play anybody you know jamie it's just that it, it, we're, i think all lacrosse people at this point you know you just want to play some games and you and you want to get an opportunity um th this would definitely be a team that um uh, a lot of division one people probably wouldn't want to entertain, I think. Yeah. You guys would uh, probably be able to compete with just about anybody, although it's going to be more competitive anywhere. I mean, with you guys getting 10, 10 seniors back, you know, everybody's getting seniors back and transfers. And it's, uh, it's crazy just how competitive lacrosse is getting uh, as a result of this pandemic. Yeah. I just think the level of lacrosse, you know, if we all get to play this year, is going to be a level of lacrosse that we've never seen before. You know, the, the, the depth and the quality of players at, you know, all the schools is going to be at an all time high. Um, and it's going to be very exciting as a fan yeah. to be able to watch, you know, some of the creativity and some of the things that are going to occur because there is going to be so many good players, you know, that especially in some of the top, you know, the rich have kind of got richer in a lot of cases at all levels. Um, you know, and some of the top teams that have added, you know, players of the year or whatever conference players of the year to their teams. Uh, those are going to be some pretty high level teams. No doubt. Sure. I want to hear um, about how you approach the fall with such a veteran group. It must have allowed you to do some things, A, with a veteran group, B, with just the opportunity to play so much more. Can you Think of some things you guys were able to do and evolve, whether it's skills, drills, concepts over the course of your fall with, with a team. You know, like if you got a new team, it's a lot harder to implement things. When you've got a team that's been around, you can really kind of push the envelope on. on, on well, I think, first of all, you know, I think we were able, number one, over that period of time with a veteran group to, to be further ahead in everything that we do that we kind of have in our package, you know, yep. in a normal fall you know, you probably don't have more than a couple man up plays, you know, we probably got a whole gamut of man up plays now uh, that is close to all that, that, that are in the, in the book. Um, you know, we, we probably did more in the fall when we talk about zone offense, you know, we don't do a lot with zone defense. I'm not a big zone guys, but you know, we did more with our zone offense than we probably would have done in the past in the fall. And I think we're further along with that part of the game. Um, I think we spent a little bit more time on riding I've been a little disappointed the last few years uh, in our, our riding is, you know, we've had some talented groups, but just the last, our tactics hasn't been good riders. So we, we rode more, we put more emphasis on some small sided drills of teaching them to funnel people and, and those kinds of things that we haven't done in the past, you know, in the fall. Um, but I, I, it was a lot of the same things because we were really trying to figure our midfield out, you know, because we had nine or 10 pretty good players uh, who was going to come to the cream of the crop and, you know, who was going to be in those first two lines. So um, we did a lot of the same drills, a lot of the same things that we always do in the fall, but I would say that definitely our man up and man down are further ahead at this point than they've ever been. And I would say our zone offense and zone defense. And I think hopefully we're a little bit better riding team than we have been in the past coming out of fall because we spent more time on the riding part of the game. 
you guys don't play a lot of zone defense, but obviously if you're going to get good at zone offense, you're going to have to play some zone defense. Exactly. Um, tell us a little bit about um, what you guys, um, you know, what you kind of learned and what your players are doing well, you know, it's just big, big picture with your zone offense. Well, you know, I, I think a lot of things about zone for us is that, you know, it's just some basic things, you know, you, you, when you're inside, you can't let one guy guard two. And I think we got a lot better at that. You know, um, when you're when you find you're not affected on zone offense, a lot of times you see one guy guarding two guys in the middle of the zone. Um, you know, I watched Virginia a lot the last few years. And, you know, one of the things that, that Lars does with those guys and they're really good at in Virginia is they, they kind of hover around that what I would call the soft high spot of the crease. You know, yeah. that seven, eight yard mark. They're never going too deep, you know, and they, there's there seems to be that soft area in there. there there's always an opening. And we spent a lot of time in our zone offense talking about that, you know, or I would stop them after I'd see a guy ball move right to left and he kind of dove too deep. And I was like, no, stay up here in the soft spot. You know, that guy in the middle of the zone's floating down low. Now you need, you don't need to go where he's going. You need to stay where he's, you know, leaving from. And we got a lot better putting that ball in there around that seven or eight yard mark. And the last few years, just watching, and I watched Virginia a lot the last few years. Seems every time I turn the TV on the weekend, Virginia was playing. And man, they're just really good at throwing the ball inside and it's never down low. It's always kind of up in that seven or eight yard spot and guys, you know, being disciplined to, to stay a little bit higher. So as the guy that's trying to cover somebody high, that's got to go cover the guy low, you know, and they vacate that area and the guys in the perimeter with the knowledge that, Hey, that's going to open up and, and giving that guy a look because a lot of times they don't. So I think we got a lot better at that. You know, just that basic concept. Don't let one guard to play that soft spot in the zone at the top. Um, being a lot more intelligent, I think, because we played it more that once we swing the ball, you know, we get a little bit of a rotation in the zone that being opportunistic about dodging the short stick, you know, as it comes at you and, um, and realizing that so many times as you watch zone offense, you see the ball moving around and man, also you got them rotating a little bit and the short sticks flying out, out of control and you got their best player and he's not doing anything. He just makes another pass, man we got to attack that guy and we got to make two guys play one in those situations. And we got a lot better just at those two things. And when you get a lot better at those two things, I don't really care what you're doing on zone offense, Jamie, you can design anything you want. You're going to be pretty good at playing zone offense. So true. Now you talk about don't let one player guard two. Do you ever think about it where you're going to try to get one player to be guarded by two? So when you're in well, that, I mean, obviously, if, if we can get one guy to guard two, we're going to be more advantageous. Um, but, you know, but, you know, sometimes when we do that, we're talking about picking other people, the guy that's guarding you, now going picking somebody else at the same time. So, you, you know, the, the two guys become one. Um, and then the zone is now down two to four instead of six. Um, so picking on it in certain situations, even against the zone, sometimes this isn't a bad idea. Totally. Well, the reason why I sort of put it that way is because I've been, I'm doing an off-ball presentation tonight, actually, at the, at the virtual lacrosse summit. And I've been thinking a ton about off-ball, more in the context of two-man game. But anytime uh, a defense is switching, um, there's a soft spot in the middle. They're passing you off, and that's what zones are. And so when you talk about that soft spot that's up high, it's really because you're sort of in between zones. You're not allowing one guy just to guard you or one guy to guard two. You're just going to sort of sit there in this soft spot between the crease player and the adjacent higher wing players. And when you're in that, you're sort of pulling people towards you, but you're also not, they don't want to commit to you because they've got to worry about somebody else too. And learning how to slow down in those soft spots is applicable to, I mean, in Virginia's man-to-man, -man, they have a guy sitting in the soft spot when, when teams are sliding to their big little inverts. Um, and anyway, I was just sort of thinking about that, you know, on the flip side of don't allow two, one guy to cover two, but also anytime you can get two people to have to cover you, it's a really good way of looking at it also. Mm -hmm. For sure. Talk a little bit about the way that you're trying to get your guys to dodge. We were talking about this a little bit in the pre uh, podcast conversation about running by your guy versus getting by your guy zone. Dodging that short stick that rotates to your best player in the zone is probably a great example of you can't just long dodge. You're going to have to, you know, get a little bit of step, get some leverage and figure out how to get through that gap, uh, get your own shot off by getting by your man. Can you talk about that in the context of this as well as maybe man to man? 
Well, like, like we were chatting before, you know, I, I think as the game gets more competitive and it becomes more of a national game and, and, and the higher you go and the closer you get to a national championship, for example, the, the playing field gets a lot more level, you know, and it, and it becomes more like, as I mentioned, like the NFL, you know, on any given Sunday, you know, any team can beat anybody in the NFL. Why? Because there's that much talent on both teams. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of talent on those top eight or nine division one teams this year. It's, and you're, you're not going to run by there. I don't care how good somebody is. You just don't run by somebody because everybody's that elite athletically. And it, and it becomes a, you know, a game of the people that can get by people. And I think that's why, you know, a lot of the box guys have, you know, really felt their presence and done so well here in recent years is because, you know, they're really good at getting by people. They're not good at running by people, but they can get into people and they can roll off them. And, you know, when God loses their balance, they take advantage. They can step back. Um, and, you know, we got two bigger midfielders, uh, you know, one six five and he's about two ten, and one six four and he's about two Oh five and, and solid speed, but, you know, they can both shoot it really, really hard and, you know, all fall, whether we we're against zone offense or whatever we were doing, we talked about grinding on the corners a little bit, about getting into your guy and stepping back, you know, about hitching a little bit more and freezing and, you know, and, and, and working your guy in, when they're on you, you know, type right. versus you, because you're not going to run by people and, and putting yourself in those spots on the corners, especially, you know, at 10 and 10 and in those areas where if that guy makes one mistake when you get into him, whether he drops steps or whether he gets pushed to the right or pushed to the left, when you shoot the ball that hard, all you got to do is step back or step to the side and, and get your hands free for a second and you're going to be able to score a goal. And, um, you know, that that's an art. You know, yeah. a lot yeah. of kids, when they're little, they don't learn how to get by people. They're always taught to run by people. So they don't learn, they don't learn to play with people on their body, you know. Um, and a basketball guy from the backyard, you know, probably a lot of times, you know, you're rolling and you're hooking and all of a sudden you're hooking the guy with your arm. All of a sudden you get a half step and you get a shot. You know, you don't run by anybody, but it's a similar thing. You know, you, you got to play against people on you. Um, and when we talk to them about that, you know, a lot of times when people get in lacrosse game and they get people on them like that, they give the ball up. You know, and, and with these two guys, there was numerous times this fall when they were in areas that I thought were very advantageous, you know, on the corner, maybe, you know, up at 10 or 12 and 12 or even 15 and 15 on that corner. Yeah. And, and they got a shorty on them and no slides coming yet. They need to hold on to the ball in that area and work on getting by their guy because their strength, you know, and using some deception, hopefully, and pumps and fakes is going to get that defender to react a little bit. And then, boom, they can step sideways, they can step back, and they can take advantage of their big shot and score some goals. Yeah, when you get up to that midfield island. I mean, everybody talks about, you know, move your feet, move your feet, move your feet. But there's a time to roll back to the middle and be able to, like you said, feel your guy, work your guy, use pumps and rockers. You know, just by being there, you're going to force everybody to stare at you. And if they don't slide and you're looking at them, it's a really difficult predicament for the defense. And think about how many times, and you watch film all the time, how many times you see a guy get to a spot and it's like, man, he's in a really good spot. He just passed the ball. You know, and, and you want to really work and you, you take all day to get the ball to that spot to, to be able to, get, you know, do something. But yet you give it up because people aren't, they don't feel comfortable with people on them and making moves, you know. They're also are not wired to, to realize the advantage of just being in that spot. They're wired to get separation. They feel like that's why the difference between Canadians and Americans is Canadians just shoot it when they're when they when they're seemingly covered, but they're in a good spot. Whereas Americans feel like they got to beat their guy and get separation. They don't shoot necessarily until they see that net and they feel that. Um, and there's times when you can just kind of. You're, when you're there, you know, you are a huge threat. Yeah, well, you know, when you're inside, there's people always on you, too. So you're just used to playing in a tight space all the time because there's no nothing else but tight space. Yeah, it's true. Um, I want to uh, change directions here a little bit towards staying on the topics of offense. But, you know, you've, you have, you've won so many championships and you've been in so many big games. And you've got, you've had some of the most skilled players, but you obviously have to play with discipline. How do you find a balance between developing your players and allowing them to be creative and at the same time being smart and disciplined 
how do you find that balance between not overcoaching them, but not undercoaching them? Um, I would I don't know if there's a perfect balance. I think one of the things that we do here and, you know, if you, people come and watch our practices, we play very fast and there's not a lot of downtime. You know, there's a lot of reps, uh, a lot of tr small sided stuff, you know, and transition stuff where you're repping and you're doing things over and over and, and you're shooting live shots in, in those kinds of situations. Um, but, you know, like when we talk about the deception part, one of the things that I, I said this a lot this fall, seemed like every other day, you know, we get ready to do a three on two tight space drill or four on three thing. And I was like, Hey, today, every time you get the ball, I want you to throw a pump or a fake. I want to see how many times, how many pumps or fakes you can throw in the next four minutes to get them to start thinking about, you know, using deception a little bit more. And it was amazing when you kind of just preface the drill. Hey, how many pump fakes can you throw in this drill today? Jamie, how many hitches can you throw in this drill today? And you, and you start thinking about it. Like, you know, you did 10 reps, you got 10 reps in a, maybe in a, in a four minute drill. And, and you thought, man, I, I threw 24 pump fakes because you were counting your own fakes, mm -hmm. you know? And so a couple of days a week, I was kind of getting in their head about that. I, when I ask you how many you got, I want you to tell me, you know, because we want you to do that. We want, you know, to be a little bit more creative and, and, and work on your deception. Um, so that was something that we did in the fall. Um, but, you know, we define pretty good what a good shot is, what a bad shot is. Yeah. You know, when when a kid takes a bad shot, um, you know, not that I, I'm going to, you know, I'm never a guy that's ripping guys. That's just not my style. Um, but we do talk about, you know, who has the right to shoot from certain areas. Right. You know, um, and, and our guys after this fall, I mean, you know, when Bromwell shoots from 15 yards or Dowd shoots from 15 yards, nobody's saying don't shoot, you know, because they know that they can shoot the ball that hard. They were tested out there this fall at 106 and 108, you know, goalies have problems with that speed from at 15 yards at our level. But, you know, if you're Luke Harbottle, you know, or you're Luke Nestor and you shoot from 15 yards, you know, you're going to feel the wrath of that from not only coach Berkman, you're going to feel the wrath of that from all your teammates because your teammates know that that's not a good shot for Jamie Monroe. Right. You know, that you needed to hitch and you needed to get closer to 13, which was your range, or maybe I needed to double pump because I needed to get to 10. Yep. You know, um, so we're, we're, we're pretty good about defining, you know, what a good shot is, what a bad shot is. And, and it's amazing how our, our, their teammates will let them know in practice when they take a bad shot to the point. Sometimes I don't even have to say a word. You know, because they know what a good shot is at Salisbury and what a bad shot is, what a good angle shot is, what a bad angle shot is, um, you know. Um, but, you know, we do a lot of things and a lot of drills. And so th that's reinforced all the time, you know, in all those drills. And I think that creates the discipline when we do get to the games that they don't take bad shots or they take what they, they know they can do or do what they can do. How about – how do you teach your team to make decisions as it relates to transition, early offense, and relative to score time, stuff like that? You know, when to settle, when to probe, when to push it. Um, how much are you doing that? And versus how much are you really letting the players figure that out? Uh, what's the balance there? And how do you teach that? Again, I think that comes back to practice too. You know, you, you, you hopefully have done a lot of full field transition drills and, and you've gotten into a lot of four on four scenarios or five on five scenarios or, you know, three on, even some three on three situations where the ball was passed way upfield ahead of the other people, you know, and you've talked about, hey, this three on three when Cross Ferreira gets the ball in the right wing, that's go time. You know, we can't get a better opportunity than Cross Ferreira in open space going three on three, you know we can do all we want on offense, but we'll never get that, that, that same advantage. Yep. You know, when, when Brad Greit comes down and it's four on four, they know that we got to clear through on the bottom guy and we got to give Greit a chance to go down and then maybe even get under because he's a handful, you know, at, at two Oh five and, and extremely fast. Um, you know, but Joe Salino comes down, you know, we're probably going to be a little bit more conservative and we're going to get the ball to X and we're not going to go to the goal because that's not in his, in his repertoire. Um, so those things kind of get, they play out, you know, from, from doing the full field drills of like, Hey, 
when this guy goes, pretty good chance, you know. Um, but when this guy comes down, let's just get some and get our guys on the field. It's just not, you know, it's not a green light for everybody. You know, yeah. everybody doesn't have a license to shoot. And a lot of guys coach lacrosse like that. You know, I coach lacrosse like basketball coach. You know, everybody doesn't have an equal right to shoot. You only have so many shots in a game. All right. And, and if Jamie Monroe is the worst shooter on our team, well, Jamie Monroe might not get any shots except layups. You know, even though Jamie likes to shoot three pointers, he doesn't have a license to shoot three pointers when we got Michael Jordan on our team. Why would I give Jamie Monroe five three pointers when I could give Michael Jordan five three pointers? And a right. lot of guys don't coach like that in lacrosse. You know, they don't define things and they let everybody kind of have an equal right. Well, everybody doesn't have an equal right to shoot. And, you know, within our offense, you know, you better be within where you can shoot or then it's not discipline. Um, but a lot of guys in lacrosse think, well, my hands are free and it's okay. And they just let everybody shoot. Well, that's why they don't score as much because the right guys aren't shooting. That's right. You know? But coach, I was open. Yeah, I know. There's a reason why you're open. Yeah. <laughs> that's a classic basketball line. There's a reason why you're open all the time. But, but, um, you know, in, in the concept of shot selection and being able to have individualized the shot selection so everybody knows what a good shot is and everybody knows what a bad shot is and everybody knows what it is for each player. Um, it holds true with your dodging, your feeding, your playmaking as it relates to transition as well. Um, so that's basically what you're saying. It's very similar. It's the same concept. You're just sort of applying it up to, uh, yeah. I mean, people dodging. know on our team that if we're coming down four and four, you want Brad Greg to go. I mean, he's just a monster, you know, uh, we're not going to get a better scenario than Brad Wright coming down and D Mitty. That's a, just a bull, you know, and handles the stick pretty good. Uh, you know, in, in nine times out of 10, who's going to be guarding him is going to be their offensive guy who doesn't play very good defense. You know, everybody in our team knows we want, to, we got to clear through and give Brad a chance, you know, and, and then we're going to see cut underneath and we might even come back and, and pick again for him, you know, if they're really slow getting into the hole. Um, but if everybody else knows it's John Doe coming down, you know what, we're going to get the ball, we're going to get it through X, or you know what, John Doe might give the ball to the attacking, but he's going to follow it up with a pick in a two-man game, but we're not going to, we're not going to make a big effort to, to play because we know, right. you know, these turnovers. I mean, a couple of years ago, man, I know Coach Axel was all about, you know, this, you know, we got to keep more early offense, early offense, early offense. Well, you know what, I, after about seven games, I said, I said, screw your early offense, and he's the offensive coordinator. I said, Coach, we can't do early offense with all these guys. Look what's happening. You know, we're turning the ball over because, you know, we're giving guys opportunities. Again, it's the same as shooting. We're yeah. giving people opportunities and putting them in situations that they're not capable of doing. Right. Just to say, you know, because what was the concept? Everybody was talking about early offense, right? Three yeah. or four years ago, everybody was talking about early offense, scoring more goals. Well, again, it's great. Early offense is good. But the right guy's got to be doing early offense. And you think about every team in the country, everybody in, in the country, you know, we're playing three, maybe four D middies. Well, there's a reason those guys are playing D middy to start with. You know, they're tough, but they're not real good on offense. And, you know, also now we're giving all these guys that maybe aren't very good at all at offense chances to go. And now it's creating turnovers. So now we're getting no return on our early offense. Right. Like, much better yeah. get, get them out of the game. I feel like there's um, everybody is going to feel that way a little bit, um, particularly with younger teams and stuff like that. How do you find the balance of, of, of basically, you, you know, when you restrict people, you also restrict their opportunities to get better, but you also need to do this sometimes to be able to win a game, right? You can't just keep letting everybody throw it away or take shots in early offense when you're not scoring. But at the same time, over the course of time, you want your players to develop to the point where you're, you know, year next year or at the end of the season, we're going to be better at this. And sometimes where do you find the drawing the line of letting your players uh, learn and controlling them and putting an end to things? How do you find that, that balance? Because I'm sure you have to live with some mistakes in order to improve. Again, I think if you're a good practice coach 
and you're extremely disciplined in your practices and you're extremely organized, you've done numerous transition drills and, and kids have gotten some opportunities. And in some of those drills, when you're doing them, you're going to let them go and get some opportunity. And then after you get through those, some of those things, you're going to say, hey, look, at, you know, we come on a slow break today. It's four on four with John Doe. You know, we're just going to get the ball to X and we're going to go play six on six because that's based on what he did in a five on five flow drill, based on what he did in our six on five trailer drill, based on what he did in our Virginia drill. He isn't ready to do that. And then also the same guy will say it's the same guy that we don't want to go on a slow break. You know, when we did four and threes in tight space, five and four in tight space, and he's a D midi, there would have been times during those drills that he would have got a chance to play some offense. He would have said, hey, you know what, Joey, go play O today for three of the, the four minutes in this drill. And, and so that, you know, your stick gets better. And, and then also he's starting to make good decisions in those drills. He's making better ones, you know, and, and then it leads up to, yeah, you're okay now to go because you've, you've proven yourself in some drills and you have been given your opportunity. You know, a lot of times we're doing our 55 flow drill. We go up and down five and five continuous. And it's a drill for transition, but it also gives our defensive middies a lot of chances to come down in four and four and five and five situations, pass down, pick down plates in that game, clear through, drive, drive the corner, grind it. You know, they get some chances to do that in the drills. And, and out of that comes, you know, a result. And then the result earns them an opportunity. So what you're saying is you're going to be able to measure based on what you're doing in practice, but in practice, you're not going to necessarily hold them. Uh, you're going to let them experiment a little bit and try to develop along the way while you're figuring out what, what they're good oh, at. Yeah. And so then when you get to the game point or the full field point, you know, then you can, you can tighten the rope a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Switching gears. You, uh, you answered this question on a webinar with a bunch of my uh, JM3 athletes last March when we were in quarantine, but I loved, I loved it. Um, what makes a great defenseman? Well, I think, first of all, when you talk about D guys, you know, and I, I, I think back to like, you know, Eric Martin on the world team and, and Jeff Biggis, three-time first team All-American played pro and Kyle Hartzell has been on the world team. I mean, they're just very athletic, obviously, and they're and they're fast. Um, but you know, Eric and, and Biggie, especially, they're just mean. You know, and uh, I learned a long time ago. I remember when I was going to Hobart College to do camps back in '83 and '84 when I started coaching when I got out of college. And you know, and Coach Warren was part of his dynasty at at uh, Herkimer then. And I remember him speaking way back then, and I don't remember what the lecture was, and I, this always resonated with me. He said, you know, when you're playing D, you're not out here to make friends. You know, you're out here to impose your will. So, you know, great defender like Eric Martin, what's he do? He imposes his will. He, he's mean. All right. You when he's guarding you, Jamie, a great defender, you feel uncomfortable. You feel intimidated. Um, they, they, they just alter your presence because of who they are and how mean they are. And, and even when they don't get a chance to win something, you still feel their wrath. You still feel their will. You know, you go for a ground ball in the end line and you're playing attack, you know, at Yale and you know you're going to get the ground ball and, and Eric Martin's on you, even though he's not going to get the ground ball, you still are going to feel Eric Martin. You know, within the confines of the rule, somehow he's going to get his stick across, you know, it might be your arm, it might be your, he's not going to hinder you from getting the GB, but you know what? It's going to hurt. And he doesn't get a penalty because he's good at doing it within the confines of the rules, you know, and any great defender is like that. I mean, you just see they're imposing, you know, you just don't like to be. And so what do you do then if you're that kind of defender, man, and you're, you're playing against them. You have a tendency to give the ball up more. Yeah. You don't want it. You don't want to feel it. You don't take the extra step. You don't want to grind against them. Um, I mean, those that, and then the other thing, they're like they're like cornerbacks in the NFL. You know, cornerbacks in the NFL are the best athletes, and you can leave them out there on an island. And a great defender, because of his athleticism and his speed, are, are a guy that you can leave on an island a little bit. And you, you don't have to worry about sliding to them all the time. Um, and then what else does a great defender do? A great defender is always really smart. And he really knows if he was guarding you, you know, that he knows what your strengths are and he knows what your weaknesses are. And he's smart enough 
to take your strengths away. And then he's athletic enough to defend your weaknesses, no matter how good you are. All right. Smart enough to take your strengths away, athletic enough to defend your weaknesses. And when you play playing like that, you know, when you're imposing your will, I mean, that's a hell of a defender. <laughs> really is. I mean, if you're playing, if you're an attackman and you're playing against a defenseman who doesn't beat you up, it's going to be a much easier day to, uh, to, to, to get, to get a lot of points. Oh, absolutely. And just the ground ball things, you know, if every time you go to get a ground ball, you're getting slashed pretty good across your wrist within the confines of the rule, then you start to be a lot more timid about the ground balls you go get, unless you're just a really tough guy, but everybody who plays attack is not really, really tough, you know, and everybody who plays a sport isn't really, really tough. And so now that kid hedges away a little bit and now he's a half step slower getting to that GB. And now that, that, slash across your forearm that used to be on your forearm. Now it's on your wrist and you drop the ball. And now Eric Martin gets the ball. Um, I'll tell you one other thing about Eric Martin, that, you know, why he was one of the, the greatest players I ever coached is that Eric wanted to win every day. I don't care who he was guarding in practice. He was going to dominate you and he was going to dominate you the first possession in practice. And he was going to dominate you the last possession in practice. And he just had that mindset. I mean, he was one of the most extremely competitive people that I ever coached and man, the second attack guys hated him, you know, because he just would impose his will every day on them. Um, he just knew how to get it done every day. And again, that's what a great defenseman does. He plays every possession, you know, he plays every ground ball. He plays every pass to you. So you've got to turn to the outside. And again, you feel uncomfortable. Um, but a lot of kids just don't have that mindset, you know, um, but I think that's what it takes to be really special at defense. I love it. Um, I have a question about how you teach the footwork for short sticks versus the footworks footwork for your defenseman. I don't know if it's a lot different, you know, again, we're, we're talking about strengths and weaknesses. We're talking about keeping somebody on the side of the field. You know, when you approach somebody, you know, you, you, you got to have, top foot forward, back foot, so that you're already, you know, you're D midi, you're already facing the sidelines, so we're funneling. Um, but, you know, we want, we want to approach, you know, we talk about teaching. If we're talking about defense, I mean, Coach Sandlin's down at the defensive end, has been with me for like 17 years, you know, first drill probably next week when we get the individual time. He's just going to have guys running towards a guy on a pass and breaking down with the proper top foot and, and back foot and, and, and funneling to wherever side that, that guy's weakest hand was. And then you're going to throw the ball back to the other end. And we're going to work on, you know, approaches and breaking down. And then once the next drill, he's probably going to have him in a box. He's going to have two guys in a tandem on defense. The guys are just going to pass the ball around a box. And each pass, they'll hesitate for a second. Guy will come out on an approach, proper footwork, break down. The other guy will drop in saying, I, I got your back. And then we'll move that to a three-man back right, back left, and work on approaches, you know, um, so that we're facing the right way, so our feet are facing the right way. Um, but, you know, a lot of part when we're guarding guys behind the cage and we're talking about close guys, a lot about is just knowing the strengths and weaknesses and what we're going to take away and what we're going to give. And, you know, hey, that kid's all right-handed, man. I'm going to approach, you know, he, he has to go left-handed. And we're going to force him to go that way. And you're already going to be in, in, in a drop step situation that your first step's already going to be going the same way he is. You're not going to have to cross your feet over. Um, but, you know, we like our, I like our D middies to be able to play with a stick in their both hand when they approach somebody up top and keeping the head of their stick up field. Um, but everybody's not real comfortable doing that. And I'm not yeah. so particular that I make every guy, but, you know, be in theory, if I can make every guy have their, have their stick up field and they were comfortable doing that and strong enough, you know, that, that would definitely be ideal. I was asking, I've been looking at a lot of uh, clips from PLL games of short sticks and long sticks. I had my editors break down all of their defensive matchups. So I was looking at defensive players and looking at every rep in a game, you know, like you look at uh, the whip snakes versus the Redwoods and you watch every rep of Jake Bernhardt on defense. And, and, I, and we looked at all of the shorties and all the polls. Um, and I, I haven't really even taken a deep dive into the polls as much yet because I've been so interested in the shorties and the way that they, the way they cover. But one of the things that I was noticing was they, they don't really drop step. 
They don't back off. What they do is they, they jam. They jam, but they use hip turn footwork. Mm-hmm. So in other words, they they actually will. And, and, and there's, a, you know, if you Google hip turns, you, you'll see articles and studies and you'll see a lot of videos from basketball and football and defensive backs and stuff where when you drop step and pivot, it's slower than if you actually reposition your feet, leave the ground and explode. And the reason is because of your, you know, so if you were drop stepping and pivoting on your left foot, it takes you longer to get your hips over your right foot to be able to move as quickly as if you like literally slightly left the ground, reposition your feet and exploded. It's a faster movement. And if you watch the best shorties in the PLL, this is what they do. And they jam because it allows them to jam. Whereas poles, you know, you got your six foot stick, so you can back off and you can kind of keep your distance. But then you watch some poles like a Matt Landis and that guy moves more laterally and, and jams you before he just sort of backs off. Um, another technique that the that these shorties in the PLL do is sometimes they pick you up way out as you're coming out of the box and they actually turn their hips with their butt facing the midline just to run, just to get running. They don't even bother to try to square you up and jam you there. Um, and it's just really interesting. And I was just, uh, I'll send you, um, I've got, I've got a document, uh, Google sheet where it's got every one of those breakdowns. I'll send it to you. You can check it out. But I was curious if you sort of thought about that, um, foot repositioning versus drop steps, if you thought about it at all. Um, and does that make sense? What I'm sort of, um, talking about there. It makes sense. But I mean, you know, again, we, we're pretty fortunate. We've got some pretty athletic guys, sort of like the guys we're talking about. They're not good as those guys, but they're pretty strong. Um, you know, we definitely want to knock guys off their line. We don't want to just run with people. Right. Um, and our better DMITs are pretty good at that. You know, once they establish a position and get somebody going one way, then they're pretty good at knocking them off the line that they intend to go at um, and jamming them on their hips. And Yeah. And, why is that so important to knock them off the line? Yeah. Why is our guys it, are pretty good at that. For sure. Why is it so important to knock them off their course? Yeah. Well, just get them off the course and instantly then their angle's gone. Right. You know, and, and now the, you got to be ready for another move. But again, a lot of middies, you just because people are so used to trying to run downhill, they feel once they get driven off their line, then they give up. You know, they're you know, whereas we're trying to teach our guys if you're Bromwell, you know, or your Dowd, those two guys, if you get driving down right handed and they knock you off your line, whoa, that's a great opportunity to plant. Now let's grind on the corner, let's get back to the middle. It's not give up. It's now let's reposition and try another method without giving the ball up. But, you know, so many get kids in our game, once they get knocked off their line, what do they do? They fade out and they throw the ball to X. <laughs> or, they, or, you know, they, they throw back. You know, they don't, they don't, you know. And when, when a guy gets knocked off his line, again, it's the great point, I think, for us and what we talk about. Hey, you get knocked off your line. How are the guys on defense thinking behind you now? You know, what are they thinking? The guys on defense right now, when they see I just got knocked off my line, they're relaxing a little bit. They're stepping back. Well, that's the best time to come back at the guy, you know, versus just throwing the ball to X and playing right into those defenders' hands. Do you try to knock your defenseman, your attackman off the line as much as you're trying to knock a midi and jam? Or, or is it a little bit more of a – backpedal stick out type of situation or is it more of a I, I think again that, that becomes then how athletic you are on defense you know i don't think it's the same for everybody team because i don't there's certain people that you know got got to ride their guy up field and once they get to a certain point then they can push and, and, and ride, ride him out and then there's other guys that are a little bit more athletic down there that that can knock a guy off line and and uh and, and play you know eric martin could go out and knock you off the line and not worry right. even if you lost a half step he was still going to recover um and same with biggest biggest was just you know, that's why he played the pros as D midi because he was just great at coming out. And, and, and you take one step one way, and, man, he'd come right up on you and drive you right off, even with the pole in his hand and knock you off your line, and all of a sudden you're going a whole lot wider, and he didn't have to worry about getting beat. You know, yeah. two, of, two of our other guys, and right now they're not that athletic, so they go out and do that. Next thing you know, the guys are going to be running by him. Right. You know, they, they got to come out and approach, force the guy to his weakness. You know, when he gets beat by a half step, he's got to let him go a half step, and then he's going to ride him out you know, and take him to the outside where a shot he's not going to be able to, to make because he, he is in a good position. Right. So interesting. The way you articulated that is, is uh, so good. Um, last topic. Um, let's talk a little bit about recruiting at Salisbury and recruiting in this pandemic. And 
how has it, uh, how have you, what have you learned? Uh, how, what, it, what have you been able to take advantage of? Um, and what's your advice for people out there? Well, that's a lot of questions, but, uh, <laughs> well, you know, first of all, even though it was different, the D3 guys didn't have any rules this year. You know, you didn't see the, you didn't see any D1 guys, right? You still haven't seen them. Well, it's the same thing. D3 didn't have any rules again this year. You know, it was okay for us to go out and recruit and get COVID, you know, but it wasn't okay for the D1 guys to do it. But you know what? The parents expected us to be there, um, you know, and to, and to my assistant coaches, Coach Axel and Coach Leeds and Coach Garbarino, they're credit, man. We were at a lot of tournaments, you know. I didn't go as much as I have in the past, but I still was out there at a few, you know, and there was a lot of events that have happened, Yeah, you know. So, and then there were certain D3 guys you would see, but there wasn't a lot. But we did go watch a lot of guys play, you know, and we know who pretty who's pretty good in the 22 class and who we would like to have. And, you know, we knew who we had to watch in 21s to see if they were good enough. Um, and, you know, so we did go a lot because a lot of people, you know, a lot of parents said, well, you, I know you're not going to be able to come and see my son, but, oh, yeah, we are. We're going to be there because those rules don't apply to us, you know. Um, but at 22s, you know, we obviously in 21 and 22 are thinking that we can't have as many guys because some, you know, hopefully your better players, if they have the wherewithal are going to be able to stick around another year, you know, and anybody wants to reward loyalty and, and anybody wants to reward a guy that's in the program that you've seen developed and right. man, you know, 23 year old, you know, you were a lot better at 23 and you were at 22. You were smarter, you were bigger, you were stronger, you know. Um, and if you got that guy that's ready to give you an extra year versus taking another freshman, I'd rather take that guy at the other end, you know, who's a lot more refined and knows the program and knows the system, knows the culture. Um, so, you know, right now we're at like 11 guys in the 21 class when usually we probably would be in 16 or 17. You know, and probably next year it's going to be similar. You know, we already have four 22s, um, but we're probably only going to be in the 10 or 12 range when we normally would be in the 15, 17, you know, range. So just because there isn't as much spot. Now, the NCAA has given a little bit of relief this year with the Title IX stuff and, and you know, in the roster sizes, you know, in your backyard. I believe Denver had 60-some guys, you know, playing lacrosse. But, you know, in another year, it's not going to be – they're not going to be able to say that in another year. You, know, you can have, you know, these extra players because of Title IX and all and money and everything else. So, you know, as you're moving forward, you know, you're not going to have as many opportunities. Um, I think also moving forward, if, if you got the wherewithal to take a gap year uh, or put yourself in a position and do something to get better for a year, probably not a bad idea. Um but if you're going to go do that, and I've had some people ask me, you know, coach, I'm going to go do this and, you know, take a gap year and then end up going to school that's not even, I want to get better at lacrosse. I'm already really smart, but I just want to get better at lacrosse. Well, make sure you go somewhere that they really work on lacrosse. Yeah. You know, don't go to a place. So, yeah, they can't play in the fall at all. And they only play 10 games in the spring. And, you know, they have an okay coach just to say you, you went to PG, you know, go play lacrosse where they're really playing lacrosse and they're training every day. If that's what your objective is, yeah, you know, take a year off and go play boxing in Canada somehow, or, or you know, um, but you know, you're obviously going to be have a better chance to be playing as a freshman that way too, you know, because at 19 you're going to be more of a man and more skilled if you took an extra year than if you are at 18, and then maybe you get to play earlier, you know, if mom and dad have the wherewithal to do that. Um, no doubt for these 21s and 22s. Um, give you a much better chance because it's going to be like we said earlier in this podcast, it's going to be so competitive with all these fifth year coming back, coming back. And you also mentioned that there was another blanket waiver in division three. So now they have two this year and last year. Is that what you said as far as? Yeah. So right now, you know, the NCAA has made a statement that nothing counts in division three this year, you know, um, that you can, play whatever amount we get to play who knows how many you know some teams are going to play a few games and some teams probably going to play 14 or 15 who knows because every area is a little bit different um but none of that's going to count against you not it's not going to count in your years it's not going to count your number of semesters um you know so you in theory could 
stick around for two more years for some kids. Um, you could have yeah, a junior. You had the wherewithal. Next year, you could have a junior with four years of eligibility. Yeah, you could in theory. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, it's going to happen at the Division One level because they've done it in, in football. I mean, football played a season, but I'm pretty sure the fall sports all got a blanket waiver. I wonder what they'll do with spring sports this year in, in Division One men's across just because, you know, they gave him a year last year. So everybody in the whole, you know, college across reclassed, you know, having two reclasses, crazy. Yeah. Again, the rich get richer uh, in that situation. Um, and you're going to have more people transferring. You're going to have more people in the portal because then there's going to be schools that don't have the opportunity to do those things. But yet you're going to have some pretty special players, you know, um, that are going to want to continue to play. Um, and there's going to be schools that will take them. How difficult is it to manage a, a bigger roster that's so competitive from, from a cultural perspective and, and, you know, keeping people happy and motivated um, when their opportunities, you know, they were looking forward to a year. Well, it obviously makes things extremely competitive, Jamie, you know, and, you know, yeah. competition definitely is, is a good thing. And when you got to compete every day, um, but it's, it's hard to predict, you know, especially at our level, you know, is that kid going to stay another year? Cause you know, he never really knows. Is he going to be able to do it, you know, or not do it? Is he in the mix or not in the mix? Um, so every, every case is, you know, a, a little bit, you know, a little bit different. Um, you know, I want to just say one of our guys named Luke, Luke Bottle, Harbottle. Luke Harbottle is a very good player, and he, he's really ready for a breakout year in his senior year. And he's he's just a handful. Um, he, but he hasn't had great success so far in four years. You know, it's like he has one great play, and you think he's going to be a first-team All-American, you know, and then a lot of bad plays. But he's just that guy. If, if all things, like, come together, he could be just a first-team All-American. You know, what? he's taken a job with my son at true already for next year. But what if Luke Bar bottle car bottle blows up this spring, you know, and what if he is a first team all American, you know, what, what's going to happen then? Is he going to say, you know what, man, I want to stick around. Or is dad going to say that, you know, maybe thought I didn't have enough money, man, all of a sudden dad has enough money. So there's so many things that are, you know, going into this yeah, and, how, and predicting it all. It's very difficult to, to predict a lot of this. You know, because some kids will stay or not and then and have such a good experience and want to come back. And then you'll have a kid that, yeah, I'm coming back. And then all of a sudden, you know what? He ran on third midfield. He thinks he's coming back and he's going to be on third midfield. He's not going to come back, you know, because it's just not worth it for him. Um, so some of the, a lot of those things go into it, too. So it's hard to predict a lot of times exactly how many you're going to have. But you can predict that the practices are going to be competitive as heck and they're going to be a blast, right? Yeah, we, there was no shortage of competition. Uh, and even with the COVID, you know, with, you know, four guys missing practice for the next eight days, you know, a lot of situations or eight guys because they had to be quarantined. You would have been, man, we're not going to be able to do anything. Didn't even miss a beat. <laughs> you know, even four of your best players were not there because it was so competitive. So awesome. Coach, I love talking lacrosse with you, and I sincerely appreciate you taking the time and being so open. And uh, your uh, your concepts, your ideas, your philosophies are just uh, just a joy to listen to. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Anytime.